Nearly 40 years before a groundbreaking series in 2011 from the New York Times shocked state policymakers into revamping the oversight of care for the most vulnerable in the Empire State, a similar transition was underway as a result of a 1972 expose into the Willowbrook State School on Staten Island by the young investigative reporter Geraldo Rivera. children lying on the floor naked and smeared with their own feces they were making a pitiful sound a kind of mournful wail that it's impossible for me to forget this is what it looked like this is what it sounded like but how can i tell you about the way it smelled it smelled of filth it smelled of disease and it smelled of death this reporting on the warehousing of thousands of young people with intellectual and psychiatric disabilities prompted a national outcry as well as legal action, which produced a 1975 consent decree signed off by then-Governor Hugh Carey, who turned to Clarence Sundrum, a young assistant counsel in the executive chamber, to help implement the agreement. As part of this work, Sundrum began looking into the way complaints about care at more than four dozen state-run institutions were being handled and determined they were being shuffled up and down the bureaucratic ladder, often ending up with someone whose best interests were not necessarily served by a thorough and transparent investigations of the concerns. And it was clearly a very unsatisfactory way of dealing with serious complaints that were coming to the governor's office. So a colleague of mine and I came up with the idea that there should be an independent agency that didn't run anything but would have responsibility for oversight. And so the idea of creating this independent commission on quality of care came into being. The governor liked the idea. He asked me to draft the legislation, which I did. We submitted it to the state legislature as part of a reorganization of the whole Department of Mental Hygiene that broke it into separate offices of mental health, mental retardation, and alcoholism and substance abuse. So once the legislation was enacted, we set about trying to find somebody to run the commission. And most of the people that we approached thought it was an insane idea to have the very small agency responsible for overseeing one of the largest areas of government operation. And they turned down the opportunity to run the commission. So at that point, the governor turned to me and said, well, you thought this was such a great idea. Why don't you go and run it? And thus, I became commissioner of the agency in 1978. Just to put it in perspective, in 1978, the budget of the Department of Mental Hygiene was about $3.5 billion. The commission was funded to have about a million-dollar budget. So it was something like a thousandth of 1% of the organization that we were overseeing which is one of the reasons why the people that we offered the position to said it would never work. The mandate for the Commission on Quality of Care was to investigate allegations of abuse and neglect of New Yorkers with special needs who were under the state's care, as well as looking into the quality of care more broadly. During the course of this work, Sundram and his team began looking at patterns in the complaints they were investigating. And so we spent time looking at what are the underlying causes of these complaints we're getting uh, and how do you fix the underlying causes so you don't need to get a thousand complaints to fix the problem that people are dealing with and to fix it across the board. And that's what led us into doing a lot of systemic studies about things like how are medications handled in the mental health system? How do you get consent for major medical treatment for people who are in these institutions 
are deemed incompetent to consent and don't have a family to make that decision for them. I mean, those sorts of things led us to looking at issues much more systemically rather than on a one-by-one basis. This type of holistic overview became a hallmark under Sundrum, recalls Harvey Rosenthal, executive director of the New York Association of Psychiatric Rehabilitation Services, whose first encounter with the commission came in the early 90s when they were approached about the issue of seclusion and restraint. They asked us to give them access to people that had been in state hospitals and to poll them on their experience. And as you can imagine, it was a pretty traumatizing experience. But the commission then used, they actually published a separate report with the comments from our people, the people themselves. And then they published policy recommendations. And I would say in the ensuing years, you you saw the seclusion and restraint rate go down in state hospitals at one of them, Mohawk Valley, went down almost to zero. In order to promote their findings, the commission would sometimes issue press releases and hold press conferences, which Clarence said were met with mixed levels of interest from the media. To augment this outreach, they created a newsletter distributed to providers under their purview, but it was also accessed by families in the system, advocacy organizations, and policymakers, with requests for the bulletin coming in from across the country. We would publish the work that we were doing in that newsletter and distributed it to all these people so they could be informed about the work of the commission. And I think that helped by itself in, number one, informing the constituency groups, you know, the users of the mental health system, the family organizations, the advocacy groups that were out there, and also the providers who wanted to improve the quality of what they were doing. So we kept a fairly good public profile, and that helped with also informing the legislature about what was happening. You know, the mental hygiene committees in both the Assembly and Senate paid very close attention to what we were doing and would frequently follow up our reports by questioning the commissioners of the agencies about, well, what are you doing in response to these findings of the commission? So I think those things helped the commission essentially use a bully pulpit quite effectively to change policy and practice. But not all the state agencies under the oversight of the CQC were happy to have their practices questioned publicly, recalls Sundrum. In the mental health system, for example, when we highlighted the problem with lack of informed consent by parents of minor children when the institutions were treating them with very powerful psychotropic medications, and we suggested they needed to change their policies and routinely obtain informed consent from families, that would have required a fundamental change in the way in which they did business. And there was a lot of resistance from the Office of Mental Health to making that change. But we persisted. We made a public report about it. And eventually, they did, in fact, change their policy. There were many times that people were angry about reports that we put out there uh, and try to make life uncomfortable. But that's, that's the job I signed up to do. I mean, the reason the commission members had five-year terms of office is that the legislation anticipated that we would form an independent judgment about the work that we were doing and do it honestly and fearlessly. I had a very informative conversation with Governor Hugh Carey when he appointed me to the job. When he appointed me, he said, look, you know, you're, you're going to be running this independent agency, and there are going to be people telling you the governor is upset with you about something that you're doing. He said, if I'm upset with you, I know where to find you. So he said, the best thing that you can do to serve my administration 
is to do your job as well as you can and do it honestly. And that was extraordinarily liberating. And, you know, it's it's the kind of conversation I never had with anybody else. And I was in the job under three governors. Beth Haroulis, now the director of disability justice litigation for the New York Civil Liberties Union, considered the commission to be a well-respected agency when, in 1994, she became responsible for overseeing the implementation of the latest Willowbrook Agreement. It was charged with a lot, but I think, you know, it reflected a point in time when the state was also very committed to ensuring appropriate provision of services to people with developmental disabilities. Were they charged with too much? Possibly. I mean, reflecting, I think, the time, they did not, in fact, reflect the role of self-advocates and people who were not institutionalized and who were advocating for themselves You know, the whole disability movement has a very old saying, nothing about us without us. And so I think as the movement unfolded and as people were empowered in the community, CQC could have changed a little bit with the times in terms of having, you know, a quote, consumer panel, consumer focus, consumer inputs to the work that they were doing. It was this unique setup in Albany's bureaucracy and the work prioritized by the commission, which helped it develop a sterling reputation among stakeholders. Eric Geiser, now the CEO of ARC New York, said the commission, when he joined in the mid-90s as an investigator, was considered the quote-unquote Harvard of the state government. It was independent. It had really moved the needle in terms of advocacy and oversight of people with developmental disabilities. But It was actually broader than just developmental disabilities, too. It also included individuals with substance abuse disorders. It also included individuals with mental health disorders. And they had just done an amazing job investigating abuse and neglect in the system and then using those investigations to really promote best practices. They had a series called Could This Happen in Your Program, where they would take a specific case that they had investigated and issue it almost as as an educational piece to the field. Things like heat stroke uh, from being in vehicles to restraint and seclusion, uh, medication administration and management, all of those things were things that they put out into our world and uh, I think made services and supports uh, better for all those classes of individuals. In 1998, at the end of Governor George Pataki's first term, Sundram, who had previously only worked under Democratic administrations, found he didn't have the same relationships with people in government and felt the environment had changed. He decided it was time for him to leave. When I took the job to run the commission, I had expected to spend my career as a lawyer and that this would be a diversion for a couple of years. And then I would go back to practicing law, probably in a more traditional way. I didn't realize when I started the work how meaningful and how fulfilling it would be. And I never would have imagined that I would spend 20 years at it. His departure coincided with a decline in the perception of the CQC. Harvey Rosenthal described the leadership transition as a real loss. Did things get a little softer afterwards? The the administration changed, and it wasn't Maricomo, it was George Pataki. And so there was, you know, I think less of a focus on this, frankly. So, yeah, I think there was a diminution, both because Clarence was gone and because the politics changed and the focus changed. 
Eric Geyser, who continued working at the commission for about five years after Sundrum left, said operations changed with the change at the top of the organization, and he felt like there was more political pressure on them. Ultimately, and ironically, it later turned out that Commission on Quality of Care following Clarence's leadership uh, was roundly criticized for not maintaining a real independent arm of the system and ultimately led to, I would say, demise and transition to what became the Justice Center. Following Clarence Sundrum's exit from the Commission on Quality of Care, the decline of services for New Yorkers with special needs and the shortcomings of the Commission's response to the landscape persisted largely outside of the public's eye until the Gray Lady's influential spotlight was focused on the pervasive abuse and neglect at state-run homes for New Yorkers with developmental disabilities. The reporting by the New York Times was initiated in part by Michael Carey, who'd worked as a used car dealer in the Capital Region and had become a citizen advocate following the traumatic experience of his son, Jonathan. So Jonathan uh, was an amazing young man, incredibly loving. He was born with some developmental disabilities. He was diagnosed with developmental disabilities at 19 months old, and that at six years he was diagnosed as autistic. He was nonverbal. So we put him in a, a school uh, downstate called Anderson School to help him learn to toilet train and dress himself but he was tragically severely abused, neglected there. Jonathan um, started to lose weight. Uh, We saw it in his face and his chest. We could see his ribs. Uh, We started questioning the facility. Uh, They immediately went into protection mode. We couldn't talk to staff. We had to talk to an administrative contact person. But we went down to take Jonathan to, uh, to a dental appointment, and a staff told us, please take that clothing bag which was over in the corner. And we already had change of clothes and pull-ups, et cetera, for Jonathan in, in our van, but they insisted. Well, lo and behold, we forgot the bag in the car. We went home. My wife found it, opened up the bag. There was a communication logbook in there between st- the staff at the home and the school, which was on the same grounds. And in it, there was many entries saying that they were basically withholding food and meals from Jonathan. Jonathan had no shirt on parentheses, Jonathan refused to eat lunch, Jonathan refused to eat dinner, he had no parentheses, no shirt. There was a significant pattern. So we brought that to a friend of ours who's an attorney, said that's absolutely abuse, give me that document, you know, et cetera. We got Jonathan out of there. A cursory inquiry into the Anderson School's care of Jonathan, conducted by the Commission on Quality of Care, failed to raise significant alarm bells about the Anderson School. This review would eventually come under the scrutiny of Eric Geyser, who at the time was working in the New York State Office of the Inspector General. That was one of the investigations that we did at the Inspector General's office that led to really uncovering some pretty shoddy investigative work by the Commission on Quality of Care and did not adequately protect Jonathan Carey at his time at the Anderson School. In the wake of this experience, Michael Carey and his wife Lisa championed the creation of Jonathan's Law, which would ensure parents and guardians of children under supervised care could access records about their kids, a right denied to Jonathan's parents. It also requires the facilities to notify the families within 24 hours of any incident Within three days, they're supposed to be in with a supervisor to, to, to rectify the problem. Ten-day written corrective action. And then within 21 days, they could, after they make a written request, 
for documents after an investigation, the, there's, the state and the private agencies have to release that information to the parents of legal guardians. Governor Elliot Spitzer signed Jonathan's law in May of 2007. Jonathan Carey, though, didn't live to see this moment, as he was murdered a few months earlier at the age of 13 by a caregiver from a state institution in the capital region. The state would eventually agree to pay $5 million to settle civil lawsuits brought by his family. In the aftermath of this experience, Michael Carey would become a fixture in the halls of the Capitol as he advocated for additional pieces of legislation addressing the care of vulnerable New Yorkers. He struggled to make his voice heard by reporters covering state government who had their plates full at the time with the barrage of news emanating from Planet Albany, recalls Danny Hakem, who had been part of the New York Times team that won a Pulitzer for its reporting on Governor Spitzer's sex scandal and was the paper's bureau chief at the Capitol. I definitely ignored him for a long time, but on one occasion, you know, he, he left some documents in my office and I started looking through them and I saw that one of the one of the documents was some kind of record that showed like it was a disciplinary record of a a state worker at the office for people with developmental disabilities and it showed that this worker had been abusive. And it, it struck me as soon as I read that you know, well, if he could get his hands on this kind of document through a freedom of information request, what could I do? Over many months, I got hundreds and hundreds of disciplinary records and began building a database of, you know, what happened when state workers who were caring for individuals in group homes, you know, what happened when they were abusive? And then that's really how the project started. He documented pervasive abuse and neglect at thousands of state-run homes responsible for providing a range of services to tens of thousands of New Yorkers with developmental disabilities. And as Hakem parsed the records of these incidents, he detected a culture where workers, guilty of committing abuse and neglect, had a habit of skirting serious responsibility for their actions. I certainly started noticing that there would be instances where there were employees that the state determined were physically abusive, sometimes even sexually abusive, and the state made that determination, kind of, you know, found these people guilty internally. But then there would be an arbitration process with the union, and those same employees would be put back to work, though at a different group home. So they would simply shift them around, you know, to a different home. The Abused and Used series from Hakem and his colleagues at the Times would go on for months, examining various aspects of care for New Yorkers with special needs, including the use of medications and restraints. They also documented the state government's response to the reporting, which prompted an outcry from a public largely unaware of what had been happening on the state's watch. Bill Getman, who now runs a nonprofit human services agency, was working at the time in leadership at the State Office of Children and Family Services and said the reporting was greeted by some with defensiveness, but acknowledged there were elements of the system that could be improved. I think what we had back then was we had a very disjointed system. We had the regulatory agencies having their own standards, their own protocols, and their own sense of what constituted abuse, neglect, or even a crime. There was no malintent, I think, by the uh, state agencies. It simply was a system that wasn't that sophisticated. I think the reference that you sometimes hear that you can't have the fox guarding the chicken coop was relevant back then.
and we needed reform, we needed change, and we needed some additional accountability. In response to the public uproar, then-Governor Andrew Cuomo, just a few months into his first term in office in 2011, tapped Clarence Sundrum to take the helm of a sweeping overhaul of the state's care for the developmentally disabled. The move was heralded by opinion sections of newspapers from around the state who felt that, given Sundrum's work in response to the Willowbrook scandal and his two decades of well-regarded service leading the Commission on Quality of Care, he was well-suited to the moment, a moment that he saw as an opportunity to implement significant change. A crisis is one of those times when all of the preconceived ideas are open to re-examination. And I thought this was a great opportunity to help in that re-examination and to try to fix some of the problems that people have been aware of with the way in which the abuse and neglect complaints are handled within the human service system. So it was an opportunity to broaden the conversation as well, you know, beyond just the mental hygiene system in New York. And there weren't any conditions placed on the work I was going to be doing. And I was basically given the ability to look at the entire human service system and to make a recommendation to the governor. Of course, none of it was binding on him. He always had the option to to say thank you for your service and, and goodbye. Thirteen years after leaving state service, Clarence Sundrum was back in the thick of things, starting in the spring of 2011, as he engaged with dozens of stakeholders from across the human services sector in pursuit of recommendations to improve the services for about one million New Yorkers with mental illnesses, developmental disabilities, or other conditions requiring a wide range of care. And then, you know, as ideas started to gel in my mind, I would use meetings with these sorts of groups to share ideas and formation to see what the strengths and weaknesses of these ideas and what might work, what idea that sounded good might not work, and to essentially go through that process of refining what my ultimate report would look like. After teasing some of his findings in the fall of 2011, the public got to see Sundrum's final 113-page report in April of 2012. It was called The Measure of Society, Protection of Vulnerable Persons in Residential Facilities Against Abuse and Neglect. In the process of making his recommendations, he had to untangle a familiar legislative and regulatory web that was born out of laws added piecemeal over the years and silos in the executive branch. The patchwork has existed for as long as, as I can, uh, can remember. And I think part of it is that the whole system of government is pretty balkanized. You have the mental health agencies. They have a mental health committee uh, in the Assembly, a mental health committee in the Senate. You have the health department, which runs the nursing homes. Well, their uh, supervision occurs through the health committees in the Assembly and the Senate. You have the Office of Children and Families that runs residential schools for uh, for children, some of whom have mental health problems, some of whom have developmental disabilities, but they're supervised by the Office of Children and Families. There's a committee in the Assembly and in the Senate that deals with children and families. And to make matters worse, sometimes you have the legislature writing laws that seem to apply across the board to multiple agencies, But each agency is then given the authority to write regulations, and they wind up writing different regulations or regulations that vary in significant ways from one another. And there hasn't been any mechanism to harmonize that and say, you know, this is the same problem you're all trying to solve. Why don't you have the same set of regulations? Well, it's never been done that way. 
And that's one of the reasons why you have so many of these glaring inconsistencies that you see when you step back and you look at the whole as opposed to just looking at each of the pieces separately. The result he wrote in the report was, quote unquote, inexplicable gaps and inconsistencies, which was embodied by the fact that state agencies and providers under their oversight shared a common obligation to keep vulnerable New Yorkers safe from abuse and neglect. But the execution of that mission could vary widely as the result of different standards of care, different reporting systems and different investigation processes. And I'll tell you, as a lawyer who's been dealing with this stuff for years, I find it baffling and I I just... I pity the poor person who is on the front lines trying to make sense of this uh, this stuff. So the thought was that we had uh, a single set of definitions of what is abuse and neglect across all of these, these human service systems. What is the standard of care that you want from the employees? If somebody commits a transgression, what is the standard of proof that's gonna be required to establish that that uh, offense was was uh, committed, because the standards of proof also varied tremendously from one agency to the other. There's a lot of emphasis on criminality. So what's the standard by which somebody reports an offense to a local district attorney or police? Well, the standards for doing that varied from one agency to another. Some had no definitions at all. The idea was to treat the whole human service enterprise with a single set of standards and to also make reporting of conduct simpler because each of them had different reporting systems. So that's where the idea of having a single 800 number that people could call in and say, you know, I don't know which is the right pathway to go. I'm gonna call this 800 number, let them sort it out. So that was the idea behind having a hotline to deal with the reporting obligation to make it as simple as possible with as little paperwork as possible and have trained investigators at the hotline to decide what's the pathway for this particular case. In the vein of standardization, in order to prepare caregivers around the state, the report also called for a training academy similar to what's available for corrections officers before being deployed to different corners of New York. I thought it didn't make any sense to leave each employer the responsibility of training their staff without some resource available to them where a curriculum could have been put together thoughtfully and training made available to their employees, whether it was coming on site to a training academy or whether it was delivery of this training through webinars or other mechanisms like that. I mean, I thought that was something that really required attention because the task is pretty gargantuan. A recurring failure he identified in the system was the lack of a clear differentiation between the types of abuse and neglect that can occur, which Sundrum framed as the difference between mortal and venial sins or felonies and misdemeanors. So in the report, I make that differentiation between the major abuse and neglect and minor abuse and neglect and as importantly, about things I call program failure, which is the kind of omissions that occur because people have been put in a situation where they just cannot perform the duties that are required of them because the resources aren't there, the staffing isn't there, somebody didn't show up for work for their shift, somebody's been required to work a double shift, so they're now in hour 14 of of a double shift, and things go wrong. And the reason for doing that is to have this sense of proportionality and also to tailor consequences to the behavior and the culpability. So for the most serious behaviors, you know, we talk about 
dismissal from the workforce, referral for criminal prosecution, barring people from working in, in the field again, having a register in which you keep them so they can be excluded across the whole human service system. For the other stuff, there are lesser penalties if there's culpability. And assuming that these aren't repeated acts of misconduct, even of a lesser level. For the third level of things, the program failures, what you really want to see is those, those conditions corrected rather than holding the individual employee who happens to be on duty because somebody failed to staff the shift appropriately. You want those conditions fixed. And I think that's really at the heart of many of the recommendations in this report. For those instances of abuse and neglect that were not minor or the result of systemic failings, Sundrum's report called for a system of progressive discipline to guide the employer's response and ensure accountability for employees. During his time leading the Commission on Quality of Care, he found that the state's success in imposing discipline was quote-unquote iffy, in large part due to the labor protections provided employees, a fact that was hammered home in the Abused and Used series by the New York Times. I recommended that they negotiate for a standard table of penalties that would essentially guide the arbitrators when they were dealing with state employee misconduct. Assuming that the person committed an offense that fell into this category, you know, here's the range of penalties that can be imposed. Unfortunately, that was left because of the nature of the relationship between the state and the unions to negotiations between the union and the state. This approach to discipline reflected Sundrum's belief that abuse and neglect in residential settings was unacceptable, but that every incident didn't merit termination. Zero tolerance is one of those, those concepts that I think is, uh, is very uh, significantly misunderstood. If you think of zero tolerance as there has to be a consequence for abuse of any kind, and the consequence could vary depending on the severity of the conduct, then zero tolerance makes perfect sense. When I was talking to uh, to all these groups about abuse and neglect, you know, many of the people on the parents' side particularly were incensed by some of these horrific examples they have read about where somebody committed an egregious act of abuse and, you know, wound up getting uh, suspended for a month or two months and were back on the job. And to them, you know, zero tolerance meant fire the bastards. Uh, and I've seen this attitude, by the way, among directors of programs as well, because it's the simplest thing for them to do, particularly if you don't have a labor union to deal with. You know, you fire the employee, everybody's off your back, you know, you go on your merry way. When you think about it in terms of justice to the employee, if the act of misconduct was not of the greatest severity, that there were significant extenuating circumstances, there were responsibilities of other people that were unfulfilled, that left the employee in a situation where they were saddled with choosing between two unpalatable alternatives and they happened to choose the wrong one. In that context, firing somebody for this behavior or failure to act more often is not a sense of justice. It's really a, a perversion of justice in that context. And what that does is it undermines the whole buy-in by employees about the fairness of the system of discipline and that leads to people not reporting in the first place because they don't see the system as being just. And if they don't report, you've just undermined the entire system that you're trying to set up. There needs to be more clarity about what one means when you talk about zero tolerance. 
The report also responded to the inadequacies, both real and perceived, of the investigations by state agencies, which had been empowered to review less serious claims of abuse and neglect at facilities under their authority. To ensure thorough investigations, Sundrum wanted to beef up the traditional incident review committees, which were already a fairly well-established part of the investigative process. What was added to that incident review committee was to open it up outside the facility staff to include advocates and family members so there would be a more intensive focus on the interests of the recipients of service and their families in that process. That's what it was intended to accomplish and also to increase public confidence in the work of these committees because they wouldn't be so insular that nobody outside the service system had any idea what they were doing. In the process of crafting his recommendations, Sundrum wrote in his final report that, following discussions with then-Governor Andrew Cuomo and his staff on the best way to implement all his ideas, they would create the Justice Center for Protection of Vulnerable Persons. It would be an executive agency serving as the focal point of the state's reform efforts in the human services system. At one point, you know, there was thought about uh, expanding the jurisdiction of the commission to to encompass agencies outside the mental hygiene world. But, you know, the governor thought that the uh, the better thing to do was to, to start with a fresh slate and, you know, to, to create a new agency. To this day, many stakeholders from across the human services field find Sundrum's report to be a nuanced and comprehensive response to the problems brought to light by the New York Times reporting and those systemic challenges that were harder to articulate. Here's Michael Seawriter, president and COO of the New York Alliance for Inclusion and Innovation, who was working in the state office of mental health when Sundrum's recommendations were released in 2012. What I particularly liked about the Sundrum report is that it really took a holistic view about what what was needed for a support system like ours um, to be able to really assure against abuse and neglect in the system. And it talks about four pillars, effective implementation of protective, corrective, and disciplinary actions, simple and reliable incident reporting systems, clear and intelligible standards of expected conduct, and lastly, and which is actually the first one, a strong, well-trained, and committed direct support staff. And three of those four pillars have been developed. In some ways, they've probably over, almost been hyper-developed and overdeveloped. But in the case of a strong, well-trained, and committed direct support staff, that's where, quite frankly, New York State has utterly failed. And on the next installment of our Justice for All series, we'll examine the implementation of Clarence Sundrum's report from the legislative response in the summer of 2012 to the work of the Justice Center today. <laughs>